Hello everybody. Welcome to the 43rd live session of Ask Abhijit. Today we talk about the Aryan invasion theory. Before that, before we begin, let me see who all is there. I can see Uma Shankar Dikshit, Sumit Tivatia, Liyash, Harsh Dungar Singh Chauhan, Tejas Srivastav, Jay Dikshit, Chandana, Shreyas, Aditya Joshi, Abhay Shah, Ayush, Ananta, Ganesh, Sujoy, Vivek Upadhyay, Harbinja, Priya, Samantha, Shubankari, Anand, Amai, Kshitij, Chandrahas, Kakashi, Ritesh, Suraj, Piyush, Harsh Jain, Aryan Mithal, Anthony, Chiru, Chiching, Harshit, Neha, Ananta, and so many other people. Great to be with you all again. And thank you for your wishes for Happy Teacher's Day. Wish you the same. So let's talk about the Aryan invasion theory. I know this is the topic you've all been waiting for. So let's talk about that. Before I take your questions, let me share my own history of how I got into this particular matter in history. So until 2016, you'll be surprised to know, I was a firm believer in the Aryan invasion theory. I mean, I have been studying... and reading about history my entire life. And every single book I read, every single research paper or article I read, they all supported the Aryan invasion theory, including books and uh, by, by Indian authors, people like Bal Gangadhar Tilak, Dayanand Saraswati, and, and so many others. So everybody supported the Aryan invasion theory. So and, and there was a great deal of scientific evidence as well. There is the genetic evidence that links Indians to uh, people from Europe. There is the linguistic evidence that links India, the ancient languages of India, with the modern languages of Europe. And every single researcher, every single historian, they all drew the conclusion that this is an invasion that came from Eastern Europe or Central Asia into India and into Europe. And this is how we have these uh, connections. So I saw no reason to not believe it because everybody, every eminent historian, every scientist, they all unanimously agreed with this theory. And I was aware that there were certain Indian voices that were in in opposition to this theory. I had heard about this out of India theory and I frankly found it embarrassing. I, my attitude was very simple. We know that we all, that humanity came out of Africa. So how does it matter that whether there was an invasion from by the Aryans from Europe or not? We are all migrants. So why do we have to oppose everything? Why do why do Indians, especially especially Hindu nationalists, have to say that everything came out of India? That was my position on this. I found this opposition to the Aryan invasion theory very embarrassing, right? Now, then what happened is that I recently uh, came across some new research about an invasion of Europe that happened about 5,000 years ago. So there was this bunch of horse riding men, extremely violent men who invaded Europe from the east about 5,000 years ago, and they committed an absolute genocide in Europe. They wiped out every single European male and they took all the females as their uh, reproductive partners. And in a very brief period of time, the entire older European male genetics were wiped out. And today's Europeans are the descendants of these new invaders from 5,000 years ago and the older European women. 
so so i i saw this this research let me show you some i have spoken about this before so this is one of the headlines the most violent group of people who ever lived horse riding yamnaya tribe used their huge height and muscular build to brutally murder and invade their way across europe more than 4000 years ago so this is one headline this is another headline the most murderous people of all time revealed in ancient dna this was a violent conquest of, of europe and genetic analysis tells the tale for the first time this was from 2019 but this news started coming in in research papers from 2015 i think onwards here's one more stone age genocide vengeful prehistoric invaders who changed europe forever so essentially we find this sudden shift in european genetics it's a clear indication of genocide wide scale genocide the entire genetic makeup the patrilineal lineages change overnight almost in europe so this is a sudden influx of foreign genes and of course there there is a corresponding change in in the kind of pottery and uh, cultural artifacts that you have so everything changed all of a sudden not just the genetics but also the pottery also the cultural artifacts also the kind of uh, uh, burial goods you have the kind of burial rituals you have and all that and also you find this widespread evidence of of massacres as you can see this is a mass grave a number of people dumped together into a pit and buried hastily without any ceremony without any respect so these are the older the pre, the original europeans who were massacred in enormous quantities by these new horse riding invaders okay so i found this very interesting that this sort of a thing had, hap- had happened in europe and i also found that these same yamnaya invaders were supposed to have brought the aryan genes into india right so i found this very curious i found it very interesting and therefore i researched it further i started researching the genetic uh, data that we have i started researching the other uh, all the other kinds of evidence and uh, i found something very surprising let me let me share another thing with you so once i started looking into the genetics i found very interesting and very surprising things i found that when the out of africa migration happened the first place where humanity settled down was india and and more than 90% of the entire world's entire world's non african males have are descended from an ancient indian patrilineal genetic lineage haplogroup f so more than 90% of all non african men who are alive in the world today are descended from an ancient indian genetic lineage haplogroup f this is a patrilineal lineage which originated about uh, about 60 65000 years ago in india i also discovered after that that more than 95% of all non african women who are alive in the world today are also descended from two or three indian genetic lineages haplogroup m n and r which uh, the oldest of which arose in india between 65 and 75000 years before today so so this tells us that india was the original founders zone foundation zone of the out of africa movement it is from india that all other non african populations were populated so india is the ancestral region of all almost all non african humans today 
I found this very surprising. Then I researched some more uh, ancient genetic, I mean, genetic papers. I found that there is almost no, there is completely negligible gene flow from outside into India in the past 10, 15,000 years. Negligible. When we talk about the Yamnaya invasion of Europe, that's a complete replacement event. The male genetics are wiped out and a new replacement genetics is put in. So that, is, so that is the Yamnaya invasion of Europe. But in the case of India, there is no such replacement event. The gene flow from outside is completely negligible in the past 10, 15,000 years. I also found that the uh, many genetic studies have, dis, uh, have uh, demonstrated that North India, South India have essentially the same genetics. Right? You see, the... The distance between northern India, let's say Kashmir or Afghanistan, and southern India is more than 3,000 kilometers. It's an enormous subcontinent. The distance between Sweden and Greece is less than that. And the people of Sweden look very different from the people of Greece, right? So similarly, in India also, we have this enormous genetic diversity, but all it's a very ancient, some 60-70,000 year old ancient genetic population. And that's why there is so much diversity in facial features, in height. In, in skin color, in eye color, hair color, and all that, right? Then I also found that the Indus Valley civilization is the oldest known civilization of all time, the oldest continuously existing civilization. And its cultural traits are still present in India today. What we call Hinduism was, was practiced five, 6,000 years ago in the Sapta Sindhu region. There is so much evidence of cultural continuity. So if there was an invasion into India, how come this culture was not destroyed and there was a cultural discontinuity like we find in Europe? And then where is the evidence of the massacres? If there was a Yamnaya invasion into India and we know how brutal they were and we know what they did in Europe, we know the genocide they perpetrated in Europe, we know all the mass graves and destruction. So why is it not seen in India? Where is it, right? And so, so these are some of the things that tell us that there is something very fishy about this Aryan invasion theory. So we have evidence of cultural continuity. There is zero evidence of an invasion. There is zero evidence of a migration. And there is layer upon layer of archaeological, genetic, linguistic, literary, geological, hydrological, and all kinds of evidence that shows that India has been continuously inhabited by the same population for more than 60, 70,000 years. So all of this taken together shocked me completely. It shook my entire whatever I believed until then. And after this, after seeing the actual scientific data, I have come to the very firm conclusion that the out of India theory is much more viable and much more consistent with the facts than any Aryan invasion or migration or tourism or picnic theory. So that is uh, why after seeing the evidence, after seeing the factual evidence, after studying it for a very long time, I came to the conclusion that this Aryan invasion theory is completely fake. And after, after seeing all this, uh, I wrote an article in 2017. So this is the article I wrote. It's in indiafacts.com. The title of the article is Aryan Invasion Myth, How 21st Century Science Debunks 19th Century Indology. So this is an article I published in 2017 in which I have given an entire detailed analysis of all the evidence that was available till 2017 about all these facts, about all these aspects of the Aryan invasion that, that are completely disproved by various scientific and other, other uh, evidence. So it's a reasonably detailed article. I would recommend that if you're interested, you should all go through this.
So this is the first article that I know of that puts everything together in one place. Nowadays, of course, there are many more people who are investing their time into this and we have much more evidence that's coming out. But as far as I know, after all my detailed study, this this 27 artic- 2017 article is the first article that puts everything together in one place. So this is everything that I found until that time. Of course, I have done more research uh, subsequent to this, uh, to the publication of this article. Uh, so, so <clears throat> that is something I would recommend you people read. Now, let me show you something else, right? Something, uh, something that's a little more interesting. So, these Yamnaya people that we spoke about, we spoke about these Yamnaya people who invaded Europe. They, their facial reconstructions were done. They found, uh, they found these skeletons of these Yamnaya invaders, and this is what the reconstructions look like as you can see these are reasonably european looking people right tall strong sturdy look at the face it is a european looking face this is another one another european looking individual young man strong man look at this person european looking person but these are all ancient uh, reconstructions from many many years ago Today, with more genetic information, with more genetic data, we know more details about these invaders of Europe. We know what was their skin color. We know what was their hair color. We know what was their eye color. And after knowing these more, these additional details, newer facial reconstructions have been done of the men who changed the genetics of Europe forever. And this is what their reconstructions, accurate reconstructions look like. Take a look at this guy. This is an individual found in Volgograd Oblast, Russia, Yamnaya culture, Bronze Age, about four and a half, five thousand years ago. This is an invader of Europe, invader of Russia. These are the people, these are the ancestors of today's Europeans. This is one individual. Here is another individual. This is from, again, from Volgograd, Volgograd Oblast, Russia, Yamnaya culture. This is a third individual. This is from Astrakhan Oblast in Russia. These are all Kurgan burials, grave uh, Yamnaya graves. These are the invaders who are the ancestors of more than ninety, um, more than ninety percent of European men today. These guys, and here is a composite of these three. So, my friends, please tell me something. If you were to see these fine gentlemen walking on a street today, what is the first ethnicity that would come to your mind? Do they look like Russians? Do they look like Ukrainians? Do they look like Swedes? Do they look like Europeans? Do they look like Africans? Do they look like Chinese? What ethnicity comes to your mind when you see these fine gentlemen? To my mind, there's only one ethnicity that comes to mind. These guys are are Indians. If you see them today, they would the first thing that would come to your mind is that these guys are Indians. So these are, this is what these invaders of Europe looked like. They invaded Europe from the east 5,000 years ago. It was a violent, barbaric invasion. These were young horse riding men, average six feet height, strong, muscular, and they just rampaged across Europe and changed the entire genetics of Europe. They killed every single, every last European man and they took the European women as their wives or partners. And today's Europeans are descended from these fine gentlemen. So tell me now, which version of the invasion theory is correct? Right? 
it's very clear what's happening here so so this is just a brief introduction this is i'm not doing a detailed presentation today i just wanted to see what questions you had about this uh, rn invasion matter so that i can understand what is your perspective about this that's why i have invited questions and i'm going to answer your questions now in the future i will do most likely um, a a detailed presentation about this entire thing so now let's start with the questions okay anurag nayak says what is the aryan invasion theory and what are the claims of this aryan migration and tourism etc theory okay let me share my screen once again uh where are we i'm going to share my own article and i'm going to read out from there okay so the aryan invasion theory has its central thesis the central claims has three three components the first com- the first claim is that india's original inhabitants were dark skinned dravidians who were who built a very peaceful highly developed urban civilization in western and northern india present day pakistan afghanistan the so called harappan or indus valley civilization that's claim number 1 claim number 2 is that india was invaded and conquered from the west by a nomadic people called the aryans or indo aryans around 1500 bc these indo aryans were of european origin they were they were white skinned people and they spoke vedic sanskrit and they practiced hinduism so they destroyed the indigenous dravidian civilization they subjugated the natives and forced them to migrate to the south of india that's claim number 2 and claim number 3 is that these aryan invaders then composed the vedas and imposed this evil hinduism and the barbaric caste system upon these poor dravidians and other indigenous people of india so that is the core uh, the central claims of the aryan invasion or migration theory that's what it is but even deeper this theory actually has a deeper purpose it it it's it claims that hinduism and sanskrit are foreign to india that is the real claim that hinduism is foreign to india sanskrit is foreign to india these are the religion and 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 language of of invaders and because this is an invasive foreign thing it should be wiped out essentially okay so that is the real claim of the aryan invasion theory that is the deeper claim and the deeper purpose of the aryan invasion theory question 2 why is the aryan invasion theory used as a dividing tool when there is not a single piece of evidence of any mass violence or invasion why is it a point of contention even if there was a peaceful migration a very long time ago literally all humans came from africa this is from shivang so yeah this that's what the the claim is it is a dividing tool we all know that the british had this long standing policy of divide and rule divide and conquer we know it and yet we allow it to divide us this is a british invention it's a european invention it is the invention of christian missionaries they found that hindus hindus would not convert to christianity and therefore they started creating the they started engineering these artificial divisions in india's society by dividing indians into black and white brown and light brown hindu and non hindu aryan and dravidian dalit and adivasi and god knows what else it is a tool of colonialism and today it is a tool of neo colonialism if you think that the age of colonialism is over please think again we are still in the age of colonialism we are in the age of 21st century data driven technology driven colonialism 
and this is the major tool that is used for that in india to divide indians the claim that sanskrit is foreign to india the claim that hinduism is foreign to india the claim that these foreign invaders came into india and imposed a caste system on the people of india all these claims are fake but it is very successful today so many indians believe in this absurd theory i mean i've seen all your questions i know many of you actually believe it or some of you actually think it may possibly be true i do not blame you for it and that is why i am here today i'm going to answer your questions in the future i'm going to do a detailed presentation on how all of this is fake but the purpose is to divide indian society against itself divide north from south hindu from non hindu they they are now inducing indians especially those who are identified as dalits those who are identified as people from southern india they are inducing these people to give up hinduism and adopt foreign religions right so this is the purpose it's a dividing tool it is it is it is it was uh, devised to divide and fragment india society and in the 21st century it has been weaponized even further india's own education system teaches this as the gospel truth india's uh, i've seen certain government websites even today that uh, support the aryan invasion theory and they present it as a fact i know that india's judiciary talks about aryan dravidian aryan invasion and all that so india is a deeply deeply mentally colonized country it is not the fault of indian people that they are mentally colonized but we need to arm ourselves with the true knowledge and that's that is the, the main point here sai okay no, i don't know what the name is uh, who are these aryans and from where did this theory of aryan invasion come so there are no aryans there are no dravidians these are fake categories there are only indians india is the oldest population group in the entire world outside of africa indians our ancestors have lived on the subcontinent for 70 around 60 to between 65 and 70000 75000 years and it's a very ancient population like i said and there are no aryans or dravidians it's a very diverse population group with still very uniform genetics that's the uh, that's the paradox of india so there are no aryans first of all now where did this theory of aryan invasion come from that's a good question so it all started okay so it's not if uh, it's better to look at the bigger picture when we talk about how did this theory of aryan invasion come about and to understand how this theory was constructed we have to go back a thousand years before the british came to india so a thousand years before today india was well india had not yet fallen prey to the foreign turkic and other invasions of india india a thousand years ago had its own universities hundreds of universities hundreds of wonderful libraries and in these libraries we had the records of thousands of years of our history now this turkic invaders came into india they destroyed every single library they destroyed every single university they burned every library they massacred every single scholar every monk every bhikshu every guru everybody was massacred all these teachers students everyone was massacred we know what happened in nalanda but several tens of thousands of students were massacred in one day beheaded the university was destroyed it was ruined the library was burned it burned for several months so imagine how many how, how much knowledge we lost we lost all the written records of our past we lost the written records of thousands of years of our past it is not just nalanda it is so many other libraries takshashila tilhara 
Sharda Peet, Vikram Sheila, Odantapuri, and so on and so forth. So we lost all the written records of our past. Then the Europeans came to India about 500 years before today. And when they came into India and they started taking over parts of the country, they said, you bloody Indians don't have any written history. You don't write history. You don't, You people just transmit it orally. You are barbaric. You are primitive. You are backward. So all of the history that you claim to have had, it's just a myth because there is no written record. So the British deemed all of India's oral history, which was left behind because our written history was gone. So that's why Indians were forced to pass it on orally, whatever they remembered. The British came to India and they said that all your oral history is mythology. And then they proceeded to write their own version of India's history. So that is the genesis of this entire problem. Now, when the Europeans came to India, they, they noticed striking similarities between the vocabulary of Sanskrit and the vocabulary of various European languages like Greek, Latin, etc. So this became a field of study. They called it the Indo-European languages. Sanskrit was clearly the oldest language they knew. So at that time, they were clearly of the opinion that it all came from India, it all came from Sanskrit. Then in the 19th century or 18th century onwards, thereabouts, thereabouts, the missionaries started pouring into India, European missionaries, Christian missionaries. And they wanted to convert the population of India to, to Christianity, but it did not work. Indians were very strong in their... And in their culture, they had a very strong belief and pride in their culture. It was not possible to induce Indians to convert. So then people like Max Müller, they started studying Sanskrit. And Max Müller, he came up with this new theory based on biblical genealogy of an invasion of people into India. He said that there were two Aryan races who lived somewhere in uh, Eastern Europe or there, somewhere there. And there were two invasions, one into India and Iran, and the other one into Europe. And he said that the European Aryans were more civilized, more superior. And the Indian Iranian Aryans were slightly inferior, but they were still stronger than the natives. And that's why they were able to subjugate the Dravidians and take over the country. And then they imposed Hinduism and the caste system and all that. So this is an invention of Max Müller. And he said that this happened after 1500 AD because of biblical chrono chronology, genealogy, all that. According to the Bible, the world began around 4,000 years ago, according to the Old Testament or something like that. I don't know what it is. I've never read it. But according to these uh, Christian theories or Christian uh, myths, the world began about 4,000 or so years ago. And therefore, all chronology had to be after that. So Max Miller said that the Aryan invasion of India happened around 1500 BC. And uh, that's what it was, right? So that was what Max Miller did. After that, there were more individuals who proceeded to, to uh, put forth more theories. Uh, let me show you. Uh, one of these individuals was a person called Herbert Hope Risley. Okay, this, is, this, this guy was an exponent of scientific racism. So he said that based on the size of the nose of Indians and all, there are two races in India. Uh, so he essentially uh, sought to take what Max Miller had postulated and give it some scientific basis, scientific racist basis. So he said there were, so this guy, Herbert Risley, he said there were two races in India, an Aryan race and a Dravidian race, based on the color of the skin and the shape of the nose and all of that. 
So he is one of the founders of the Aryan Dravidian myth. The second person who did this, uh, the second individual who did this was a Christian missionary. His name was Bishop Robert Caldwell. He is the person who put forth the myth of the Dravidian language family. He said that Tamil and certain other southern Indian languages are a separate language family and he gave them he gave this language family the Dravidian name. So these are Dravidian languages. He is the originator of this myth of the Dravidian languages. And I mean, so he is essentially, he was able to divide India in this manner and he was able to convert some people to Christianity. He is called a scholar of the Tamil language. The Dravidian political parties owe a lot to this person. As you can see, there is a statue of this individual, Robert Caldwell, in in Chennai, Marina Beach, Tamil Nadu. There is a church that this individual built uh, somewhere in in the south of India and so on. So this individual, Robert Caldwell, is the father of the Dravidian movement, the Dravidian separatist movement. Individuals like that person, what's his name, Ramaswamy, Periyar, and all these DMK, AIDMK, all these political parties, their entire ideology and their, their the justification for their brand of politics comes from this person. So these uh, political parties are soft separatist political parties. They are Tamil supremacist and Dravidian supremacist political parties, they claim that they have been victimized for several thousand years, the people of South India, and therefore they need to rise up against the Brahminism and Hinduism and and Aryanism and all that. So this person, Robert Caldwell and the other guy, Robert Hope Risley, these are the racist individuals who created these artificial divides in India. That other individual, Robert Risley, actually, uh, he went further. He did one of the first censuses in India and he categorized Indians into four categories, four artificial hard categories. And this is the beginning of the institutionalization of this British created caste system in India. India had a very much older and much more complicated a system called the Varna Jati system. There were so many different occupations, so many Jatis, and these were all fluid. You could move from one Jati and and one one Varna into another. But these people, on the basis of all these false theories, created the four divisions in Indian society, which are today set in stone because of the policies of the government of India after independence. So this is another piece of the puzzle about the Aryan invasion theory. And then all the Indian academics, the Indian education system, they started teaching all this as fact and so on and so forth. This was continued and this is essentially in short the birth of the Aryan invasion theory. This is how this theory was set in stone and after independence, India's education system kept on teaching this because the great British masters had given us this great theory. So how can we disregard it? So it is still taught even today and today we have this uh, new neo-colonization uh, of the 21st century. So you have all these Marxist historians who, who, whose objective is to wipe out Hinduism from India. And there are certain other people also. The M4 complex, Mullah, Marxist, missionary, media. So they all propagate this theory. And because of that, because of the ubiquity of this theory everywhere, whether it's in the movies, whether it's in uh, the social media, whether it is in the news, whether it's in the judiciary, the Indian academia, 
everywhere this theory is portrayed as the only valid theory and therefore all indians from their childhood grew up believing this because this is what we are taught this is what every person in a position of authority teaches us and that's why this theory continues to be taught now in the 20th century they discovered that there is no evidence of an invasion there is no massacre there's no warfare there's nothing and there is no evidence of a migration also and yet so now they're trying to give it some genetic basis they first changed it from invasion to migration soon it will become tourism eventually it will become a picnic theory but they will anyhow try to keep it alive so that is the genesis and the history of the aryan invasion migration theory abhishek says was why was it necessary for europeans to create this aryan people did it have anything to do with their own history so europeans were the conquerors of the world they had wiped out the people of southern Amer- of, of the americas right they had conquered and destroyed completely Africa and they were in the process of uh, conquering and destroying India and other parts of Asia. So they were these all conquering heroes and they saw themselves as a superior people. Now when they discovered all this evidence of the Sanskrit language being the oldest language they knew and so on and so forth, it was clear that their ancestors actually came from India. And this hurt them a lot because I mean they had this belief in their racial superiority they had a belief in the superiority of their white skin and therefore they sought to po- to put forth a eurocentric version of history and they had to to also divide indian society so they wanted to to portray this theory to to put forth this theory that hinduism and sanskrit are foreign to india so since your religion and language are foreign to india therefore it is justifiable for a new foreign religion and language to come into india whether it is christianity and in english or various other abrahamic religions so they they essentially sought to say that since you the yourselves are the descendants of barbaric invaders who who oppressed the other people of india the original people of india and therefore it is completely justified for us to come and oppress you now and therefore you should give up your hinduism because it is the religion of oppressors and take our more enlightened christianity and our more enlightened english language because it is our language our religion it is superior to yours so these are some of the uh, reasons why this theory was created and even today it is still being pushed today they are trying to use the science of genetics to claim this theory is is valid there are all these eurocentric geneticists and historians whether it's in the united states or whether it's in germany who today also are trying to promote this theory right but unfortunately the data does not prove does not bear them out so this in short is the eurocentric racist uh, the reasons why these people created this aryan aryan invasion theory first of all to portray themselves as superior and higher and secondly to divide india society and to justify their conquest of india their subjugation of india and their attempts to to convert the people of india to christianity and to various other abrahamic religions so that's why this theory was necessary for them Prayag says, what are the main reasons behind the disappearance of the Saraswati River and how is it associated with with debunking the Aryan invasion theory? So, uh, 
until 10 20 years ago until 10 or 15 years ago every indian historian every indian scientist would claim every other foreign historians also would claim that the saraswati river is just a myth it's a myth these stupid hindus have created there is no such river it's all mythology but then it clearly emerged that there is indeed an enormous dry river bed in western india which starts from the himalayas and goes all the way to the uh, so called arabian sea yeah this dry river bed does exist it is visible in satellite images it is an enormous river wider and greater than the than the sindhu indus river and greater than any other river in the sapta sindhu region so it is clear that this river exists where exactly where our so called myths said it existed so it does exist now it is in, these people no longer make the claim it's a mythological river it is there and now even in scientific journals like nature etc people are have begun scientists have begun calling it the saraswati river in research papers so now it is established beyond any doubt this river existed now it is known that this river dried out around 1500 bc or thereabouts plus or minus 500 years so it dried out around that time why did it dry out it dried out because of the Mono, because of the gradual decline of the indian monsoon that's number one and maybe also because of some seismic event uh, in the himalayas so the indian monsoon about 6 7 8000 years ago was was much heavier than what it is today and it is this monsoon this extremely heavy indian monsoon indian monsoon that fed the saraswati river it was an enormous river enormous river very powerful very very strong river so it was fed by the indian monsoon it was its origin was in the himalayas so it was fed by glacial meltwater from the himalayas but as it came downwards southwards it was felt uh, it was fed by the indian monsoon rains and that's why it was such a great river enormous river now about 6000 bce and thereabouts and after that the indian monsoon started declining in over 2 3 4 000 years it declined so much that this river went half dry and it became a seasonal river and eventually it dried out in in much of its river bed even today it does exist in northern india it is a seasonal river it is called the ghaggar hakra river ghaggar hakra river you can check out my article in which i have given the details so that is the reason behind the disappearance of the saraswati river the main reason is the decline of the indian monsoon and there could also have been some uh, seismic event in the himalayas which is a seismically active zone which may have diverted its source so these are some of the reasons the primary reason the major river reason is the decline of the indian monsoon now how is this river associated with debunking debunking the aryan invasion theory so one of the main central claims of the aryan invasion theory is that the the invasion happened around 1500 bc and the rigveda was was written after that so the accepted date of the writing of the rigveda by all mainstream eminent historians is about 1300 bc definitely after 1500 1500 bc so according to this theory according to all these wonderful mainstream historians the rigveda was written about 1500 or 1300 bce not before that 100% not before that now here's the funny thing in the rigveda there is there are so many mentions of the saraswati river there are entire sections devoted to this river there are so many mentions of this river and the way this river is described is striking this river is called the mother of floods 
it is called a loudly roaring river it is depicted as an enormous mighty river that could destroy uh, surrounding regions it was the mother of floods it was a loudly roaring river so the depiction of this river in the rigveda is clearly the depiction of an enormous river in its prime it is not the depiction of a river that is declining or which has gone half dry or a seasonal river it is a de- depiction of an enormous river in its prime and the last time this river was in its prime was about 6000 bc 8000 years before today so how did this book that, that was written in 1500 or 1300 bc remember events from 6000 bc and why was it depicting those events as if they were happening when the book was written this is something the aryan invasion theorists can never explain so this clearly demonstrates that the rigveda the oldest literature that we is written in in in, in indian uh, history the oldest known literature in the world is the rigveda it is clear that this literature the rigveda was written when the saraswati was in its prime and the last time it was in its prime was around 6000 bc so the rigveda is clearly a book that was written closer to 6000 bc than to 1500 bc and this completely demolishes the aryan invasion theory because this is the central claim one of the central claims of the aryan invasion theory so this is how the saraswati and and how it disappeared and when it was last in its prime this is in a way quite central to debunking this fake claim of the aryan invasion so you can read my article and check it out i mean i've given some details about that in there achint says how can human civilization have all come from india when it has been demonstrated that humans came from africa and developed civilizations everywhere also how do you state that the out of india theory is superior to the aryan invasion theory when it hasn't been demonstrated in a peer reviewed scientific paper please let me know i would love to be proven wrong so i also had the same questions right like i said i mean how does it matter where we came from after all all humans came from, from came from africa see the point of the aryan invasion theory is not to say where we came from it is to portray hinduism and sanskrit as being foreign to india as the language and this religion of invaders and oppressors now i have already given you so much evidence that demonstrates that this theory is completely fake right and i have never made the claim that all human civilization came from india it is clear from all the best evidence that we have today the best scientific data that we have today it demonstrates that there was an out of africa migration about 75000 years before today and the best evidence that we have also demonstrates that the first founders zone outside of africa was india so i have never made the claim that human civilization came from india right and uh, why is the out of india theory superior to the aryan invasion theory it hasn't been demonstrated in a peer reviewed scientific paper so there is no single scientific paper that talks about the aryan invasion theory or the out of india theory there are all these scientific papers are individual data points it's only when we take all of these data points together that we form a big picture which completely disproves the aryan invasion theory but if you want to see one image that <laughs> that demonstrates that the out of india theory is correct then let me show you that one image 
this is the image of the invaders who are the ancestors of more than 90% of Europe's men who are alive today. What do these individuals, what do these fine gentlemen look like? Do they look like Europeans? QED, I rest my case. Okay, next question. Okay, two questions in one. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Harsh says, even we all Indians are the same, then why do we have such different diverse facial characteristics? The other question is that if we are all the same people in India, how did racial facial differences arise between North and South and the Northeast? See, India is not a small geographical region. It is an enormous subcontinent. The distance between Kashmir and, uh, and the tip of southern India is greater than the dis distance between Sweden and Greece. It's an enormous geographical region. India is the original foundation zone of the out-of-India migration. It is the oldest known population that we know of who have been living in one region continuously because it is around 70,000 years old. There is bound to be so much genetic diversity within this geographical region, within this enormous subcontinent-sized geographical region. And yet, because it is the same population for 70,000 years, there is an enormous amount of diversity as well. So the climate in northern India is very different from the climate in southern India. So people who have been living, uh, families who have been living in northern India for several thousand years, they are bound to have lighter skin. And families who are living in southern India are bound to have darker skin because they have been living for thousands of years. Similarly, east-west, these regional uh, differences in, in features, skin color, hair color, eye color, facial features are bound to happen. And yet genetic evidence demonstrates that there is no genuine, there is no actual difference. There is no significant difference in the genetics between the people of North India and South India. Now, when it comes to the northeast of India, that is a different story. There have been several migrations from Eastern Asia into the northeast of India. People of Tibeto-Burman origin, people of Sino-Tibetan origin, and so on. Uh, migrations from the Yunnan region of, of, of uh, Eastern Asia, migrations from uh, Burma and the Thai territories, Thailand, etc., of, of Eastern, Southeastern Asia. So these are genetically slightly different populations. But those are also descendants of the original ancestral founder zone, which was in India. But because they've been away for so many thousands of years, their uh, morphological characteristics changed somewhat. And that's why you see these uh, different features in the Northeast of India. But even if you look at the uh, genetic lineages in Northeast of India, you do find the Indian origin R1A1A even in Manipur and other places, right? So it's a very complex scenario. The Northeast is a special case because there have been so many migrations into the Northeast from Eastern Asia. That's why they look different. But still, there is a significant ancestral Indian genetic component even in Northeast of India. So that is the reason why there are so many facial and skin color and hair color and eye color differences all over India because it is a very, very, very large geographical region. It looks small on the map. We are used to it. But if you compare it with Europe, you will see the enormity of the Indian geography. And that's why because of this, because of the incredible antiquity of the Indian population and because of the incredible 
size of the Indian ge- geography, that's why you have all these local regional variations within the overall uniformity of India's genetics. Vishal says, can you please can you please explain the Rakhi Gari DNA analysis and what does it add to the Aryan invasion migration etc. theory? So around 2015-16 or so, they discovered one a, a number of skeletons in the in the in the Rakhigari archaeological site in uh, northern northwestern India, and the and the samples DNA samples of of a number of these skeletons were extracted. They were sent for analysis. See, the thing in India is that the the climate of India, the, the, the temperature, etc., the humidity is such that it is very hard for ancient DNA to survive. And that's why we have not been able to found so fi- find uh, a great deal of a- ancient Indian DNA in India. But nevertheless, they were able to extract DNA from one one single skeleton out of all these. This DNA was sequenced, analyzed, etc. And because of that, we have now the first evidence of one individual of, of the DNA of one ancient Indian individual who happened to be a female. So she is one of our ancient ancestors, right? So what does the DNA tell us? It tells you that there is no step component in this person. Step means the Eurasian step between uh, Central Asia and Eastern Europe and all that. So these uh, there is no Yamnaya kind of ancestry in this individual. It is a pure Indian ancestry. No step component. The second thing that they were able to find is that this individual, this female, she had a component of, of ancestry that is closely related to the ancestors of the Iranian people. So one of the uh, beliefs is that the Iranians came westwards and invaded India. And that's why there is this uh, common DNA between India and Iran. You, I, I'm not sure if you know, but India and Iran are essentially the same population. So the, the same ancient population. The closest ethnic uh, relatives of the Iranians are Indians. They're not the Arabs. So India and Iran is essentially the, the descendants of the same ancient population. So the belief was that it was these Iranians who invaded India and that's why we have this commonality of ancestry, commonality of genetics. But from the Rakhigari skeleton, it was found that she had a component of ancestry that was ancestral to the Iranian populations. So the Rakhigari uh, skeleton is about four, 5,000 years old. And the ancestry which was shared with the Iranians is about 10,000 years old. So it, it shows that the Iranians essentially are descendants of ancient Indians and not vice, vice versa. The other thing that was found from the Rakhigari analysis is that there were that uh, there are a number of ancient other individuals, other ancient individuals who have been found in Iran, in Turkmenistan, ancient skeletons whose DNA has been analyzed. It was found that this Rakhigari individual is genetically genetically very close to those individuals who are found in Iran and in Turkmenistan. They are called Indus periphery individuals. And this is evidence of an out of India migration, out of the Indus Valley region migration into Iran and Turkmenistan. So again, this supports the out of India theory. And there are many other data points. That I don't remember exactly in detail, but you can check out the article, check out the research paper, and you can see all the details. So essentially, what it tells you is that there was no uh, 
Aryan invasion into India, but there is significant evidence of out of India migrations from just the analysis of, analysis of one single individual. Now, we have to be very clear about this. We only have DNA from one individual. It does not represent an entire population. Uh, at its peak, the Sapta Sindhu region, the Indus Valley Harappan region, had a population of over 5 million individuals, which was the greatest, largest population in, in the whole of the ancient world. 5 million, it's an enormous population for that time. So one individual does not give us, is not representative of a large population like 5 million. What we need is we need to find more ancient uh, samples of DNA, at least 10, 20, 30, maybe 100, 200. Then we will be able to actually confidently make a claim as to what sort of genetic makeup was there in ancient India in, in that time period. But from the one sample that we have at our disposal, it is already showing us that there is evidence of out-of-India migration. And there is no evidence of any invasion of migra or migration into India from this one limited sample. So I, am, I need to make it very clear that we need more samples. One sample it does not tell us the whole story. But from the limited data that we have, it's clear there was out-of-India migrations. Okay, Nagendra says, what do you make of the book by Tony Joseph? There seems to be a lot of effort by some people to make the Aryan invasion a final conclusion. Yes, so that I, I, you know, I don't like to talk about individuals. I like to talk about uh, facts and ideas and on theories and uh, all that. But in this case, I'll make an exception because Tony Joseph has written a book which... <laughs> which which uh, tries to support the work of David Reich and other geneticists in claiming that there were waves of multiple pizza-like migrations into India and all that. So what do I think of this book is a good question. Let me... So let me share my own article. I had I have done a book review of this in, I think, in 2019. Here is the article. It is in indiafacts.com. The title is Journalist Attempts to Revive the Aryan Invasion Myth using discredited genetic research. It is a reasonably detailed article that I have written. I, as you can see, I am the author. So I will not go into detail about what I think of this book, about this uh, new work that was published, this book that was published, but I would invite you to read this article that I wrote, a detailed analysis of the book and its claims, and essentially to make it short, to, to, to tell you what I think of it, it's all nonsense. It is another attempt to, manif to manipulate and cherry pick data points and to manipulate uh, history and to claim that this thing happened because their entire, their entire agenda depends on the success of this theory. So the title should tell you what I think of it. Journalist attempts to revive Aryan invasion myth using discredited genetic research. Please read the article. You will get an idea of what I think about this. And you will also learn something about how these people manipulate the facts to, to present false conclusions. Okay, Ayush says, if there was no migration or invasion by Aryans, what could be the reason be behind the decline of the Harappan civilization? This is a good question. Uh, so like I said, it, it's closely tied to what happened to the Saraswati. So the Saraswati dried out over several thousand years because of the monotonal decline of the Indian monsoon over several thousand years. 
the Indian monsoon was at its peak around 6000 BC, which is about 8000 years before today. And it started declining gradually, gradually, gradually over, over hundreds and thousands of years. And by 1500 BC, it had declined so much that the entire great river Saraswati dried out. It became seasonal and intermittent only in the north of India, where it still exists to some extent. But the great river dried out. And so it is an example of ancient climate change. So because of this climate change, because of the conditions changed so much, the lifestyle that these our ancient ancestors had in this region became unsustainable. And there were so many, there are thousands of ancient archaeological sites, cities, towns, villages on the banks of this dry riverbed of the Saraswati. Because and this river sustained these towns, villages and cities. And because the river dried out, they, this was no longer sustainable. And the same thing happened in other places also. Climate change, the whole lifestyle was no longer sustainable. And therefore, slowly, 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 over centuries, people migrated out of this region and, and went elsewhere. This uh, coincide, coincides with the discovery of Indian genetics in Australia about four, four and a half thousand years ago. Precisely coincides with that. This also coincides with the Yamnaya invasion of Europe. So this climate change, change made it necessary for Indians of that region to migrate in different directions. Some of them seem to have gone westwards on a rampage across Europe. Some of them seem to have migrated by sea all the way to Australia. And the majority of the population went eastwards into the Ganga, Yamuna plain and other parts of India. So this was a very gradual dispersal of the population of this region into other parts of the neighboring region. Some even went into Iran. Uh, there is this ancient Marhashi kingdom. We know that the, the king Rimush of Babylonia, of, of Mesopotamia, actually fought with the people of, Indi of the Indus Valley region and so on. So there are data points available of Indians migrating east, west and other places as well. So that's what happened. So that is the reason for the decline, for the apparent decline of the Harappan phase of India's civilization. It is not a separate civilization. It is one of the phases of India's history, the so-called Harappan phase. But that civilization never disappeared. It still exists. It is India. The same culture exists in India. We can find evidence of the same culture 5,000 years ago in the Saptasindhu region, in the Indus Valley region, the Saraswati Valley region, and other, re other, valley, other re rivers of that region. So the civilization did not decline and disappear. It continues. It moved elsewhere to other parts of the country and other parts of the geography of the subcontinent and also other places of the, uh, other parts of the world. So that's what really happened. And the cause is climate change. Rishi says, why was the Indus Valley civilization language different from Sanskrit? And Brijan says, what is the language of the Saraswati Valley civilization? Many people are claiming that they spoke the Dravidian language. Then Aryans came and destroyed everything and all that. Is it true? So recently people have brought to my notice that there is some new research paper that has come out in which the claim is made that the people of the Saraswati Sindhu region, Indus Valley, Harappan region spoke a Dravidian language. I spoke about this earlier. Let me speak about it again. So the claim that is made in this research paper is that the word for elephant in the Indus Valley region was Pilu. 
which is similar to some some Dravidian word today, Tamil or Telugu or something. And therefore, they are claiming there is a similarity, and that's why this was a Dravidian language that was spoken in the Indus Valley region. My question is very simple: How do they know that the word for elephant in the Indus Valley, Saraswati Valley region, was Pilu? How do they know that the word was Pilu? Have we been able to decipher the script of the Indus Valley region? No. Nobody has successfully deciphered the script. So if we don't know what is written in those characters, how do we know what was the word for elephant? This is incredible that people come up with this, these sort of distortions. We don't know what language was spoken because we have not been able to decipher the script. So how can these so-called researchers make the claim that the word for elephant was so-and-so or the word for something else was so-and-so? There is no logical, factual basis for any such claims. These people are charlatans. But this becomes big news, all the media reports this, and now people start believing that, yeah, 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 it was all Dravidian spoken in that region. What utter nonsense. Absolute nonsense. We don't know what language was spoken in that region. There is no evidence for Dravidian being spoken. My gut feeling, my strong feeling, uh, my educated guess is that it was ancient Sanskrit that was spoken there. I still do not have proof. From all the data points that I have, from the big picture data points, from all the evidence, from so many sources, it is quite clear to me that it would have been Vedic or post-Vedic Sanskrit that was spoken there. But I still cannot make the claim definitively because we don't have unmistakable, unambiguous evidence for what the language was. And therefore, even I am not claiming officially that the language was Sanskrit. So how can these people make the claim that the language was a proto-Dravidian language? Absolutely not. It's absolute, utter nonsense, this kind of claim. And this is not the only person who has made the claim. There was this other individual called Iravatan Mahadevan, who is regarded as the father of Indian linguistics, who made this absolutely asinine claim of having translated and deciphered the script. And I went through the the, 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 the so-called research paper that he published. It's absolute nonsense, utter garbage. What I mean, he says that this symbol means this. Is, is stands for this word, another symbol stands for another word in Tamil. On what basis did he invent these claims? There has to be some logical basis for making the claim that so-and-so symbol of this script stands for so-and-so word in Tamil. On what basis does he invent these claims? He does not give any evidence of the logical process or the thought process or the or the or the justification for assigning certain words for certain symbols. Absolute nonsense. He has pulled it out of his hat. So this is the kind of distortion that is that has been going on for the past two centuries. Now we have these brainwashed Indian sepoys, these Indian academic coolies who keep on perpetuating and inventing new ways of keeping this fake false theory alive. Yatindra says, why Hasn't the Indus Valley civilization language been deciphered? Isn't it Vedic Sanskrit? Vedic Sanskrit is more than 10,000 BC old, etc. Uh, why do we see some other language in the inscriptions? Where are these people not the descendants of the Vedic people? Okay, what language do we see in the inscriptions? 
which other language do we see in the inscriptions we don't know right we don't know what the inscriptions say because we haven't been able to decipher the script so we cannot make the claim that there is some other language in the inscriptions please understand that that's point number 1 secondly you are saying that the, the that vedic sanskrit is more than 10000 bc or 10000 12000 years old uh, how did you come to this conclusion the oldest unambiguous evidence that we have of sanskrit is actually from anatolia the mitanni kingdom it's about 3 and 1/2000 years old in india there we must have been writing on paper or parchment or something and because of our climate all that has disintegrated or and we have not been able to find uh, older evidence of sanskrit in india so thus far the oldest unmistakable evidence undeniable evidence of sanskrit is about 3 and 1/2000 years old it is an indication of an out of india migration from india into anatolia so we cannot make the claim as of today that vedic sanskrit is more than 10000 or 12000 years old because we do not possess sufficiently strong evidence for that i am quite sure that pre vedic sanskrit or proto sanskrit must have been 7 8 9 maybe 10000 years old i am quite sure of that but i cannot officially make the claim because i do not have hard evidence to back it up so as of today i will not make the claim that vedic sanskrit is 10000 or 12000 years old right now the other question is why hasn't the indus valley civilization language been deciphered thus far the answer is very simple because nobody has tried hard enough first of all we do not have a lot of uh, inscriptions we have a handful of inscriptions that have been discovered thus far and this uh, the script or the symbols are quite mystifying they are quite enigmatic we're not sure if they re- represent individual letters of some alphabet or do they represent some syllables of speech or are they logograms are they pictograms are they hieroglyphics are they heraldic signs we're not quite sure and because we have so few of these inscriptions at hand that's why it it's it it, uh, it poses a, an, an even bigger challenge in deciphering this we don't have any other rosetta stone kind of uh, discovery which would put two different languages and scripts together of the same inscription right so we don't have these things that's why that is one of the reasons and secondly because people have been trying to decipher this haphazardly not working together there is no funding being being done being given to such an effort typically when you are trying to decipher a script you need a team of researchers from different disciplines coming together and working on it linguists computer scientists and other people historians all working together that's what you would want and for that to happen you need a certain amount of funding and a long term period of funding maybe 5 years or 10 years so that can only be done when a government or any other entity like that will get a bunch of people together set up an institution institute and fund all of that and that's not happened ever in india because the indian government doesn't care and that's why we have not been able to decipher this what needs to happen in my opinion is we need to bring computer science into this we need to digitize every single inscription that we have we need to analyze it using machine learning uh algorithms and all that and 
maybe that could be used to try and figure out what it is what sort of language does it match best so these are some of the things that can be done but thus far nobody has done it because i know that the same approach has been used to automatically translate egyptian hieroglyphics machine learning algorithms so why don't we apply this to the to the script of the to the saraswati sindhu region we should do it but thus far nobody has taken the initiative nick kumar says what's the meaning of caucasoid australoid negroid mongoloid etc why is it said that some indians are caucasoid some are australoid so this is ancient obsolete race science this is all obsolete theories okay this is what uh, herbert hope risley and uh, thomas caldwell th- those people would have believed in this is racist science race race science they created this artificial divisions among humans caucasoid means people who look look like europeans australoids are people who look like the people of australia the aboriginal people of australia negroids are the people of africa mongolia are the people of uh, eastern asia etc they created these rough artificial divisions and they tried to force fit that into everything they saw this is completely obsolete is completely unscientific and yet in india people even today believe in this that tells you how obsolete our education system is and how little we actually know about what really is happening in 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 research in historical research in the 21st century so caucasoid means people who look like europeans australoid like i said all that and according to these inch, these these 19th century colonial historians they classified the people of north india as caucasoid and the people of southern india as australoids and there is the aryan dravidian divide so that is what these people did and until recently or maybe even today this may be still being taught in india's education system which is a which is a shame so that essentially is what all these false categories mean tanveer says what is the origin or back story of the dravidian languages what was the language family's relationship with the indic languages and sanskrit and also the relation between its speakers and rohan says what is the reason be- behind two language groups in india that is sanskrit based on and uh, and dravidian so once again these are categories that have been created by foreigners these are completely um arbitrary categories they created that fellow bishop caldwell studied one southern indian language tamil and on the basis of his understanding of one language he created an entire language family and he placed every single southern indian language into that family and that is what we have been taught as the gospel truth so indians just can't think beyond these binaries beyond these categories now what is the origin of these indian languages i think there could be what needs to happen is that indian linguists need to take an ab initio look at the indian languages in a scientific manner not um uh, influenced by all these colonial ideas and we need to 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 formulate new categories and new relationships 
based on science and logic not based on colonial understanding and racist understanding that's what needs to happen as of today there is no real research being done in linguistics in india linguistics is a very unscientific field anywhere in the world today so that's what needs to happen we are not sure what are the origins of the indian languages as i demonstrated india's population is at least 70000 years old in in one single geography the indian subcontinent it's the oldest known population group in the world and there is very little genetic input from outside no significant genetic input from outside for at least the last 10 15000 years i think it's very clear to me that india's languages are very very old maybe 20 30 50000 years possibly and it could have happened that when the out of africa migration took place there were people in that small group who spoke multiple languages multiple ancient languages from 75 80000 years ago and these people all migrated to india and that was the original founder zone and these ancient very ancient languages they spoke became the seeds of the languages that you have today in the world including in india and it's clear that tamil is very different from sanskrit to some extent it also has a lot of sanskrit words in it and so on so it's a very ancient and complicated matter we need to try and trace back the the roots of india's numerous languages now people in tamil nadu say that the tamil tamil is the oldest language in india etc actually there seems to be evidence that telugu is even older than tamil so we need to stop making this a competition i i have the strong feeling that whether it is the sanskrit language and its derived and its descendant languages whether it is the various southern indian eastern indian languages they could actually originate from an out of africa migration that happened 75 80000 years ago so we need to find ways of tracing that back and that needs dedicated long term scientific study and an ab initio linguistic look into india's languages it needs to be driven by indian researchers young researchers not old people old people have old ideas get rid of them i get rid of these old ideas not the people <laughs> so these old ideas are not colonial ideas we need to take a fresh look at this and the best way to do it is with young researchers people who are just out of of college or university who know the fundamentals of linguistics who also know the fundamentals of computer science and all that and other sciences and we need to start applying these uh fundamentals in a new look at india's language groups so that's what needs to happen as of today we don't have the answers to these questions nobody has the answers to the questions of course the aryan invasion migration theorists say that they have all the answers but they are liars they are lying Chaitanya says what was the proto-indo-european language was it older than sanskrit who are the hunas and the shakas i will answer the first two questions i have already answered the third one before what was the proto-indo-european language so linguists western linguists have reconstructed a proto-indo-european language by taking words from all the various indian indian and european languages and trying to reconstruct the original words from an older language they call it the proto indo-european language they say that originally there was only one ancient language and one group of individuals and their descendants went to different parts of the world in the aryan invasion 
and these different population groups eventually developed their own daughter languages of the proto-european language and the oldest indian language which is a daughter of proto-indo-european is sanskrit vedic or pre-vedic sanskrit so that is the theory and they claim that certain other languages like Anatolian, etc., Hittite, etc., are older than, than Sanskrit. That's the claim they make. These are all false claims. There is no real evidence for that, but they still persist in making these claims. What do I think was the Proto-Indo-European language? I think it was Proto-Sanskrit. The oldest known Indo-European language is Sanskrit. It's no other language based on the evidence of the Rig Veda, which is way, way, way before 1500 BCE based on the evidence of the Saraswati river. So clearly Vedic Sanskrit is the oldest Indo-European language we know of. So the Proto-Indo-European language has to be Proto-Sanskrit, the ancestor of Vedic Sanskrit, which could be maybe 10, 15, 20,000 years old. We don't know exactly how it is. I'm just speculating. It is clearly a language that was ancestral to Vedic Sanskrit because languages keep evolving over the centuries and millennia. They just keep evolving. So if you go back 20,000 years, there will be a language that is ancestral to Sanskrit. If you, if you go back 50,000 years, there will be an even older language which does trace its lineage back to Sanskrit. So clearly the Proto-Indo-European language is Proto-Sanskrit. Obviously it is a language that would have been older than Sanskrit. It would be the ancestral language of Vedic Sanskrit. Okay, we have three questions in one. Shan says there is a genetic study that claims that the Indian R1A is the oldest genetic lineage in the world, in um, oldest Indo-European genetic lineage, about 18,000 years old. Uh, the second question is, Badrov, is it true that R1A people who originate in India invaded Europe and Central Asia? That's why all European languages and ancient culture has similarities with Vedic Hindu culture. Akshay says, we have found the oldest R1A1A samples in India. If so, how old are they? If AIT is false, how do why do several Indian historians push the narrative, etc. Okay, so what is R1A1A? That is what we need to look at. Let me share my screen with you and show what that is. Uh, just a second. Here it is. Okay, so this is the geographic distribution of the R1A patrilineal lineage. It's called a haplogroup. What is a haplogroup? A haplogroup is a group of individuals alive today who all share a single genetic mutation that traces its origin back to one single individual who lived in the past. So it's essentially an extended family of people. So R1A is the world's most successful extended family. Its members most likely exceed 1 billion individuals in population. And its members, as you can see in this geographical distribution, are everywhere in Eurasia. But the highest concentrations are in India, north of India, and Eastern Europe. Now, this is very closely, uh, this distribution of people of, of R1A origin is very close to the distribution of people who speak Indo-European languages. So it has been hypothesized 
that the spread of this genetic lineage coincides with the spread of the Indo-European languages. And that's why some people call it the Aryan gene. Now, the proponents of the Aryan invasion theory claim that this gene, I mean, this, this genetic mutation originated from Central Asia or Eastern Europe. But there is unmistakable evidence that the highest diversity within this genetic lineage occurs in India. And it is one of the laws of genetics that the geographical region where you have the highest diversity of a haplogroup has to be the original place where the haplogroup originated. So other genetic studies have been uh, done and these genetic studies demonstrate that the oldest evidence of R1A is from India. It's about 18,000 to 22,000 years old, which tells you that all these individuals who live all across Europe in Asia, more than 1 billion people today, they are all descended from one single male who lived somewhere in India about 18,000 years ago. That is the story. So that is the answer to this question. It's an ancient Indian genetic lineage. No matter what these people claim, it's going to be debunked. Research base is being done as we speak on Indian genetics. And soon the research papers will be out and they will demonstrate that this uh, genetic lineage originated in India and it is the Indian lineage, the lineage that spread all across the world. So yes, so these people eventually invaded Europe and Central Asia. And that's why, that, that is possibly why Indo, Indian and European languages are so similar. And the culture also was once very similar. But there is another genetic lineage called R1B, which is also very closely related to R1A. R1 and R1A originated in India. So this other genetic lineage is called R1B, like I said. It is the genetic lineage of the Yamnaya invaders of Europe. As you can see, there is very little of that in India. But it's there everywhere in Europe. So it looks like it is a population that went out of India completely and conquered this entire region. So very interesting genetics, but we need more research. But it's clear that R1A is very much an Indian origin genetic lineage, which kind of debunks the genetic components of the Aryan invasion theory. Blesson says, you have mentioned we don't have enough archaeological evidence of our past. Then how can we find any significant cultural shifts? How can we confidently say that the Aryans haven't invaded us? So whatever claims we make have to be on the basis of whatever evidence is available. We may not have sufficient evidence, but the evidence that we have points in a certain direction and we need to take that as the only facts we have and the only data points we have. See, the theory of general relativity thus far has been proven. It doesn't mean tomorrow it may not be proven. It may, some other theory may come up, which is better than that. As far as we know, we humans originate on planet Earth. Tomorrow we may find some evidence that our ancestors may have come from Mars or elsewhere. But un until we find such evidence, we cannot speculate and say that we are not from Earth. The evidence we have points to the fact that we are all from Earth and so on and so forth. So we can only make our claims based on the evidence that is available to us. Tomorrow if some new evidence comes, then we can change our perspective and we can change our opinions. Our opinions have to match the existing facts and the existing data. 
And so on the basis of all the existing data, it is very clear that there was no Aryan invasion or migration into India. Tomorrow, if some other evidence comes out, then I will change my opinion if it shows that there was an invasion into India. I will definitely change my opinion. I used to believe in the Aryan invasion theory because that's all what all the books said, all the writers, all the historians, all the scientists said. But when I examined the hard data points, I find I found it was all a lie. That's why I have changed my opinion. My opinion is not linked to my emotions and my beliefs. It is all based on hard evidence. So tomorrow, if new evidence comes out, then I will say, okay, there was an invasion of India. So what? But based on all the evidence today, it is clear that there was no invasion into India. The invasions and migrations went out of India. Next question is, what are the oldest evidences of horses that we find in the Indian subcontinent? We have paintings of horses and chariots at Bimbekta Caves and all that, Sinauli, etc. So I have done, uh, I have answered this question in, in detail actually. The claim that the Aryan invasion proponents make is that horses are not ancestral to India. They came in with the Aryans and chariots also came in with the Aryans. That's the claim they make. But then what about the Shivalik horse that has been present in India for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years? What about the Bhimbekta cave paintings, which are more than 20,000 years old, at least 10,000 years old, in which there is clear depiction of people riding horses? What about the horse pottery, horse figurines, clay figurines that have been found in the Indus Saraswati Valley? What about the horse bones that were found in the Indus Saraswati Valley region? So there are too many data points that completely debunk this claim that, the, that horses came into India with the Aryan invaders. Horses have been in India for tens of thousands of years. There is unmistakable, undeniable evidence of that. So this is a, is a completely false claim they make. And now we have discovered evidence of a chariot in Sanauli. And now these people are claiming it's not a chariot, it's a bullock cart. You know what, they're going to keep on trying to push back. But as we discover more evidence, all of these claims are going to evaporate into thin air. That's all it is. Tuni says, why are the Baltic and Slavic languages similar to Sanskrit? It's because there was an out of India migration into Europe, which we can see very clearly in all these uh, maps that, de that depict the various ancient Indian patrilineal lineages, whether it is R1A or R1B. Now, obviously, genetics and languages are not linked together. Today, I am speaking English. It doesn't mean my genetics have changed and they have become genetics of the British islands. But there seems to be a close correlation between the spread of the R1A and R1B haplogroups and the spread of the Indo-European languages. There is clearly some kind of linkage there. So there were out of India migrations. We know that this happened in the Mitanni region, kingdom of Anatolia and other places as well. And that's why these languages that were exported out of India are still, their descendants are there today in Europe, whether it is the Lithuanian language, Latvian, Latvian language, um, and the other Baltic languages, they are in fact quite similar to Sanskrit. And even the Baltic culture is quite similar to ancient Indian Vedic culture. For example, they still consider the horse twins, the Ashwins, as 
a symbol of good luck as an auspicious symbol they call it the ashwins in the lithuanian language i think and that is clearly a vedic uh, divinity so you see lots of such uh, evidences of the ancient connection between india and various parts of europe and obviously the indian vedic culture is the oldest and sanskrit is oldest and therefore the migration must have been from india into europe and other parts of the world and there are so many data points that corroborate this uh it's not aryan invasion it's steppe migration they became aryans after interacting with pashupati followers that's the claim you are making so that is what so many people believe but i can debunk that in an instant your steppe migrants that you are referring to this is what they looked my dear friend this is what these steppe migrants looked like do they look like europeans or do they look like indians these are the gentlemen who invaded and rampaged across europe and they are the ancestors of more than 90% of europe's males today this is the step migration and invasion you are referring to so come on anita says why were there no ancient civilizations around river valleys like ganga krishna godavari region in india so <laughs> see it's like this every single archaeological site we find today the media refers it refers to these new sites as civilizations they have found a new civilization in kiladi in south india they have found a new civilization somewhere else every new archaeological site they find they call it a new civilization which is so incredibly absurd do they even know what a civilization is india was one single civilization the indus valley civilization was not a, the indus valley civilization it was the indian civilization and we have found evidence of even older archaeological sites in uttar pradesh in the ganga jamuna ganga yamuna re- region we are now finding e- old sites even in southern india krishna godavari region and so on the reason we have not found so many archaeological sites is because we have not done any archaeology in the past 70 years after independence the only focus of india's historians and archaeologists in the asi has been on the moguls and the british on restoring mogul monuments and preserving mogul monuments and researching the moguls and the british there was no focus on ancient india and that's why we have not found thus far extensive evidence of archaeological sites in all these regions but these sites do exist it is known that the city of varanasi is older than most indus valley or saraswati valley archaeological sites it is most likely the oldest city we know of in the whole world and there are so many archaeological sites waiting to be discovered thousands tens of thousands of archaeological sites even in west bengal even in northeast india in northern india we have found indus um, uh, harappan era archaeological sites in ladakh we have found such sites in afghanistan and similarly in southern southern india also once we start looking we will find more sites but this was one single civilization every time you find a new village somewhere you don't call it a new civilization the media is illiterate the indian media especially 
so we need to make we need to understand that these are simply archaeological sites look at india today look at india today now 10000 5000 years from today let's say all indians have moved all all humans have moved to mars because we messed up the planet so let's say that 5000 years from today our descendants from mars come back to earth to do archaeology they find this subcontinent of india they do some digging in the north they find the city which we today call delhi they call it the north indian civilization then they go to the south of india they find chennai and they will call it oh we there is a southern indian civilization south indian civilization but we know today that delhi and chennai are part of the same culture the same civilization which is indian civilization but because these people from the future will come and only find two data points they may interpret it as two different civilizations which would be incorrect and that's the same mistake we are doing today we find something in the saptasindhu region we say it's the indus valley civilization we find something in west bengal we say it's a chandraketu civilization we find we find something in tamil nadu we call it the keeladi civilization these are not different civilizations ancient india was as interconnected in the past as india is today and the more archaeology we do the more evidence we are going to find about this so these are not separate civilizations it's the same civilization and the reason why we have not found so much evidence is because we have not done any archaeology our historians and archaeologists have been sleeping thus far but now some some work is being done and i'm glad to see that parth has a number of questions okay so let me take question number 2 It is said that some seventy thousand years ago, a volcano erupted near Indonesia. Its ash covered the whole of India, and all the natives of this area died, and people started migrating from Africa to here. So, this volcanic eruption is called the Toba Super Volcano eruption. It happened about seventy seventy five thousand years before today in Indonesia. It was an enormous. a volcanic explosion a super volcano explosion you are right its ash and pumice covered an enormous geographical region including much of the indian subcontinent there is a clear there is clear evidence of the deposition of a layer of ash and pumice etc which is volcanic in origin and it coincides it coincides with the eruption of this super volcano now what's curious is that the stone tools found in india before and after this event are identical and therefore it's been proven that the people who lived in india during this super volcano e- eruption survived this event so it's not something some new migration that happened into india after the demise of the original people of india they somehow managed to survive this event and the stone tools we find the techniques used in the stone tools are the same before and after the eruption so that's the thing the people of india the ancient people of india our ancient ancestors survived that disastrous event and they were most likely the descendants of the out of africa migration that populated uh, the known world that we know know today ashutosh says some people say that the adivasi group is the natives is the native of india 
is Adi means beginning and Vasi means person and so on. Yeah, good question. So, you know, uh, today everyone believes that the Adi Vasis are the original natives of India, the original Dravidians or something. And of course, we white-skinned people or or we Aryan invaders are the descendants of invaders and so on. So the word Adi Vasi is a Sanskrit term. Adi means ancient. Vasi means a person who lives somewhere. So Adi Vasi means somebody who is the original or ancient inhabitant of a particular region. It's a Sanskrit term, but this is a very recent invention, this term Adivasi. You will not find any mention of the term Adivasi in any ancient literature in India. It was coined, the term Adivasi was coined about a hundred years ago by the same people who are the proponents of the Aryan invasion theory. So it was another uh, technique to try and divide the people of India. And this comes from the belief that, you know, the people in the past were very backward, primitive. And as history went on, people became more and more advanced. And today's humans, us, are the most advanced people that ever lived on the planet. That is a very Abrahamic belief that as you go forward in time, you get more advanced when people in the past were more primitive. This is a very European Abrahamic belief. It's not an Indian belief. So this uh, term Adivasi was created to denote the people who lived in India around 100 years ago in small villages, in, in forests and so on. And they were deemed to be the original inhabitants of India. But this is again something that has no basis in fact. It has no historical basis in fact. It's a completely new term, a term that was, that was coined recently and therefore we should not take it seriously that these are the original natives of India. These are people who must have lived in India for tens of thousands of years, as did everybody else. So we don't know the history of India, which happened 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 years ago. And therefore, we don't know what happened and why, what caused certain populations to live in forests and hills and certain populations to live in the, in the plains of the country. It's a very old history. And maybe someday we can reconstruct it, but it is not evidence of the Aryan invasion theory. Uh, Harshit says a lot of people from South India, especially Tamil people, believe strongly in the Aryan invasion theory and use it as a proof of Tamil being older than Sanskrit and so on. And they say that they are the original Indians living in India. I don't understand this logic. Uh, I know that this justification is wrong. But this is the logic they all employ. I know today the people of Tamil Nadu, I mean, I know many of you are watching this. I love you all. I have absolutely nothing against anybody, against the people of South India, North India, Tamils, Dravidians, so-called Dravidians, Kannadas. We are all the same people. But the people of Tamil Nadu are especially brainwashed. I know that. I have seen it myself. They all believe that they are the victims of a 5,000-year-old conspiracy, the Aryan invasion. And now they need to rise up against the Aryans and the Hindus and the North Indians. And this is essentially separatism. This is a separatist uh, uh, sentiment. And this is all fomented by the political parties, especially in Tamil Nadu, who are extraordinarily Hindu-phobic and who are essentially separatists. Many of them are soft separatists. Many of them are hard separatists. They make these claims, This they... they some of them express the desire to create a separate Dravid Nadu uh, country out of India and so on. 
and, and, and all that, you know. And all of this owes its genesis to that individual Bishop Caldwell who created this fake theory of the Dravidian language family and the Aryan invasion. People like Max Muller, people like Herbert Hope Risley and people like Bishop Caldwell who have created these theories and all these Dravidian political parties, the DMKs, AIDMKs, they owe everything to people like Bishop Caldwell and that is why they build statues of that individual in southern India. And they use this theory to justify their politics. Their, see, politics in politics you need victimhood, you need to create divisions, only then can you create a sense of insecurity, of oppression and only then can you say that I am the, we are the only people who can uh, uplift you and bring you out of this oppression. That is the standard formula in politics and that's what the Dravidian parties have been employing for several decades. And the consequence of that is that it has imbued, it, this, this sentiment has been infused throughout southern India, especially in Tamil Nadu. Hinduism is being wiped out of Tamil Nadu. Kanyakumari is full of churches, the place where Lord Rama, from where he went to Sri Lanka and all. So this is something that has been brainwashed into the minds of the people of southern India. And well, what can I say about it? It's, 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 it's unfortunate and this situation will be rectified only when we teach the right things in the Indian education system. I am not talking about distorting history. I am talking about decontaminating and decolonizing history. Once people learn the truth, then these political parties will lose their relevance. They will be exposed as, as liars. People and then you know. So that's what needs to happen. It's very unfortunate that this sentiment is has gained so much currency, especially in Tamil Nadu. I know I'm going to get comments from people from Tamil Nadu calling me all kinds of things, which is fine. I, I It's not your fault you believe all this. What we are taught during our childhood, during our formative years, is something that remains close to our heart forever almost. So that's how it is. And people don't like to think too much. Once somebody tells you something, once somebody teaches you something, you want to cherish it for the rest of your life and you will not want to give that up. So that's how it is. So, so what needs to happen is we need to ensure that the newer generations are taught clean, decontaminated history, not colonial history. And then this problem may eventually, gradually be solved. Because India is one culture, one civilization, one people. The people of Tamil Nadu and the people of Northern, Eastern, Western India, we are all the same people. We have the same ancestry. So that's what we need to realize. Latya says, when was the term Aryan first used? Is it true that the King Kanishka the Great called himself Aryan? So the word Arya means noble. In Sanskrit, it is not an ethnic or racial term. It is something that depends on your behavior and your conduct in life. So a person who is civilized, refined, and essentially somebody who is a gentleman, the closest term in English is gentleman. You know, So a person of good conduct and good culture was called Arya. Now when Indians went out of India and populated Persia, the Persians started using Arya as an ethnic term. 
so the achaemenid dynasty the hakshamanish dynasty the kings of the dynasty like darayush kurush uh, artakshatra and so on these kings of the dynasty they called themselves arya or aryans so it is there that the term arya became an ethnic term now kanishka the great um, he has this inscri- he he created this inscription in northern india present day afghanistan the rabatak ins- inscription in which he says that i speak the arya language so the language the kushan spoke was a dialect called gandhari in ancient gandhari dialect it was a, it was a prakrit language an upper branch of sanskrit and kanishka said that the this language was the arya language so we don't know if he used this term in the ethnic sense or the cultural sense maybe he meant to say that the language we speak is the uh, cultured or refined language so we don't know exactly in what context he used it whether he said that we are all aryans or whether our language is a refined language we don't know but it is around this time that this this term started to take on some ethnic connotations especially in in iran because they had moved out of their ancestral homeland of india and then they started calling that that uh, using that term as an ethnic term and later on the europeans discovered this when they came into contact with india and they created this fake uh, concept of an aryan race entirely and then these white supremacists and the nazis they appropriated it they misappropriated this ancient sanskrit cultural term and they used it for for pursuing and propagating their idea of racial supremacy so they are not aryans if any ethnicity in the entire world could be called the aryan ethnicity it is the indo iranian people nobody else europeans are not aryans come on what the hell the word arya came from the indian subcontinent and it is the iranians who first used that term as a racial ethnic term instead of a cultural term and their closest relatives living today in the entire world are the people of the indian subcontinent so if the term aryan is to be used as an ethnic term only the indo europe indo iranians can be called aryans that includes the people of present day india pakistan afghanistan bangladesh persia sri lanka nepal etc nobody else not the europeans by any means ankur says i am from haryana i have found many people in haryana have brownish blonde hair color brown eyes and white skin as of europeans this is the case with my family whenever a baby is born in my family he or she is blonde i myself had blonde hair till the age of 5 and now they are slightly brown however these fe- these features are visible in very small percentage of the population do these features prove the aryan invasion theory right if yes what was the exact location from where the aryans came listen india is a very large geography a very diverse genetic population and yet we are very similar india has all different kinds of uh, of of uh, looks there are so many uh, recessive genes that we find so there are many people across india who have blonde blondish hair if you go to gujarat saurashtra there are many people who have green eyes blonde hair uh, what's that politician shashi tharoor from kerala he has blue or green eyes doesn't he and so on when i i mean i have brown eyes like you say when i was a kid my hair was 
it, it looked blonde in the sunlight as as people grow older their hair becomes darker anywhere in the world including in europe and so these genes that express lighter skin or brown eyes or green eyes or blue eyes or gray eyes or blonde hair red hair they do exist in india but these are called recessive genes it's only when a specific combination of both parents happen uh, comes together that you get certain recessive genes that become uh, dominant and they express themselves in eye color skin color all that so the overall genetics of india is like darker skin somewhat dark hair and brown eyes or black eyes but you do get the other variations in india and let me show you something very interesting uh where are we okay let me share my screen and show something very interesting with you all right here it is so recently in the past few years in the past decade we have discovered that the genetic mutation that is responsible for light skin in europeans it originates from a single 10000 year old ancestor who most likely lived in india okay this is one example of that here is another such article let me show you that researchers traced irish fair skin back to india and the middle east and here is one of the genetic genetics research papers that talks about that one second let me share that here it is the light skin allele of this in south asians and europeans shares identity by descent so what i mean to say is that even the genetic uh, even the genetic mutations responsible for light skin and blonde hair blue eyes etc they come from india they originate from india we don't realize this so it proves actually the out of india theory right not the aryan invasion into india theory right that is the long and the short of it my friends okay uh sanskriti says that they made this theory without any proof the aryan invasion theory and now we have to spend our time and energy to debunk it don't you think we get caught in a loop and where they keep inventing theories out of a hat and we have to confuse we have to refute these theories again and again you know the only reason why i spend my energy and my hours and my all this time trying to debunk this theory with all the evidence i don't care what the europeans and the westerners think i have to do it because the indians believe in this theory and it creates this inferiority complex in india indians believe that their ancestors were were white skin people the indians so many indians think that hinduism is an evil culture that came from, evil religion that came from outside india and sanskrit is the language of oppressors and invaders and all the evils in india today are present in india because of this evil hinduism and evil sanskrit and the even brahmin evil brahminical people who are aryan invaders it creates this deep sense of being ashamed of who you are it creates this deep inferiority complex it causes indians to regard white skin as superior and brown skin as inferior this is why i have spent so much time in putting all this evidence together to refute this theory i don't care what the people outside india think it is because indians 
believe in this that is why we have to do it and that's so unfortunate so as as the years go by as the next two couple of decades go by this theory is going to be completely buried with all the scientific evidence that is coming out unlike linguistics which can be manipulated which can be politicized science is much more harder to politicize even now they are trying to cherry pick genetic data and all that but how much more how much longer can they do that do that thus far there has been very little genetic research being done into the genetics of india into the modern day genetics of the indian population once a wide scale research project is done on the genetics of the modern indian population everything will be clear so once that is done things will be very clear and this entire theory will be put to rest um rutinjay says if we have substantial and sufficient proof that this invasion theory never happened why are the dogmas still being taught into school students until today it is to keep neo colonialism alive india's academicians have an agenda to dismantle hinduism and and sanskrit and the indian culture and replace it with various forms of colonial culture and religion india's the majority see the indian entire indian academic sphere has been taken over by marxists and marxists are proxies for various colonial forces uh, this was done during the reign of uh, during the rule of the congress party and this is a very deeply entrenched ecosystem in india these marxist academicians have a stranglehold on the entire academic system today so whether it is history whether it is sociology anthropology or any other field of the humanities they decide what is taught and unfortunately the government of india is doing nothing to change this and that is why these false and completely unscientific colonial theories from the 19th century are still being taught that is the reason okay guys this brings me to an end of all these questions it's been almost 2 hours and therefore i will not take any live questions today but we will continue this in the future so thank you very much for all your questions i will do a presentation a detailed presentation in the future in which i will put out all the details that debunk this theory but for now for today thank you very much and i wish you a good night and a good day i will see you very soon take care bye